on Halloween of 2016, that's when I actually received the cancer diagnosis. Episode 41 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I am your host. Today, I am talking with Rich Curcio, and as you heard in that intro, Rich has had to battle some pretty crazy things so far early on in his aviation career, some things that not everyone has to deal with. He has lost his medical twice due to illness reasons, and he has gotten it back both times. He is currently killing it in the aviation game. He got his hours as fast as he can. He's getting ready to start working for a Part 91 company this September, so hopefully in the next couple weeks. Uh, Rich is just balled out, and Rich's story is one that I think everyone can learn something from, whether it's what to do when you lose a medical, how to get the medical back, the process, the bureaucracy that you go through to get this back, and how to overcome that, and uh, what you need to do, how to get all your uh, eggs in a basket to show the FAA that you are ready to come back and fly and prove to them that you deserve your medical back. Some of the other things we talk about in this episode are just why Rich wanted to fly, what motivated Rich to keep flying as something that he wanted to do when time seemed tough, when time when he didn't think maybe I, I can't be a pilot. How Rich actually came to a deciding point that if he didn't pass his instrument check ride, he was either going to give up aviation or if he passed it, he was going to go 100%. And thank goodness he passed it because here he is today just doing great things. Figure out how important it is to find someone to be in your corner in aviation, whether it's a girlfriend, whether it's a wife, boyfriend, husband, friend, mentor. It's just so important to have someone that has your back that can push you to do amazing things in this career. As we talk about in this episode, it's kind of hard in this industry in aviation to, you know, you're not going to make great money right away. You're going to be 25, 26. Some of your other friends are going to be doing really good, really well. They're going to be making some good money and you're going to be a CFI. You're going to be working for a freight company. You're going to be aerial survey, building your hours to get to where you want to get today because not everyone becomes a regional airline pilot at say 23 or 24. You got to build on that and it's tough seeing your friends be doing really well, buying these cool things, buying new cars, and you're here just saving up, waiting for the day that you become an airline pilot. But it does come, so don't give up. Aviation, I hope you really enjoy this episode as I had a ton of fun talking with Rich and it's been a long time coming. So without further ado, here's Rich Curcio. Hey Rich, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be uh, finally able to make this work. <laughs> I know, right? It's been a long time in the coming, but it, uh, it's all going to be worth it. Yeah, yeah, no, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, in fact, I was just thinking earlier about uh, how much uh, some things have changed in my life and career since uh, I first reached out to you. Oh, really? So uh, I'm not going to say it's a good thing that it's been this long, but uh, maybe we'll have some more <laughs> stuff to talk about. Yeah, definitely. We definitely will. Cool, man. So uh, first thing I always ask everyone is, why aviation? What made you want to get into aviation? Uh everything really uh when i was a kid growing up um i was just interested in uh planes trains automobiles everything that moved um it's kind of funny uh, i remember uh, listening to uh uh drizzle's episode with you uh kevin's episode and uh, he talked about two shows that used to be on the discovery channel and uh, one was beyond 2000 and there's another one he used to watch those a uh, bunch when i was uh, quite younger and uh, there's also another show uh, in that block that was called Wings, and uh, I had a bunch of stock footage, and they always do profiles on like World War II fighters, and 
I think that would probably be the main influence when I was younger that made me want to fly. I saw all that stuff and I thought it was pretty cool. So, did you have anyone uh, in your family that was in aviation, or was it just kind of you're the first one? You happened to just randomly find these TV shows and that sparked the interest? Yeah, that, that was actually it. Uh, both my parents are career educators. Um, nobody, as far as I know, uh, was in aviation prior to myself. Uh, in fact, my grandfather, his first airplane ride was when he was in the Navy. Um, <laughs> this is the first time he'd ever been on an airplane before. So prior to that, um, nobody in my family had any connection to aviation. Oh, geez, that's crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> so you watch these shows when you're younger. When did you first either take your first flight or start your training? Or what was the process in between when you like initially got the bug between when you actually acted on the bug? Um. Well, to be honest, I didn't really realize that I could uh, fly as a profession until I was probably my early teens. Uh, beforehand, I'd always just assumed that uh, what you do is you join the military and uh, you know you get all your training that way, and you become a pilot, and then, you know the natural progression lets you do that, and you go to the airlines and stuff like that. Um, when I was also a kid too, I was also pretty big into the space program and, uh, learning about like the Apollo astronauts and stuff like that. They're all military guys and, uh, they were all pilots beforehand. Um, so actually if I want to preface it even further, uh, I had wanted to become an astronaut and that's why I was, uh, interested in flying to begin with. But, um, yeah, so, uh, it wasn't until I was about 13 or 14, uh, and I was in high school they had a college fair and even though i was a little young to start thinking about that i saw this uh, display for florida institute of technology i was like wow you can really go to college for that you don't have to join the military um sign me up <laughs> yeah exactly and it wasn't like i had anything against joining the military um my parents just weren't too keen on that idea uh, and uh so long story short i decided that uh, if i wanted to do this that would probably be the best route for me yeah. And I started shopping around and uh as time went on um there was an air show at the uh, local airport uh, KGON Groton uh <coughs> excuse me here in uh, Connecticut and we went there and I went there with my grandfather and they had the EAA doing a uh, Young Eagles uh program the free flights and all that and uh, that was actually my first time in a small airplane. Uh, this guy took me and my buddy up in a this 172 for about a half hour. And I was like, okay, um, if I'm comfortable doing this, I can definitely, you know, progress to right. actual flight training. And then, uh, so that's what really kind of solidified it for me. And what even, you know, uh, maybe latch onto it even further was, uh, <coughs> excuse me here. Um, Summer between uh, my senior year in high school and actually entering college for aviation, I uh, got a T6 ride out of the same airport. Oh, and shoot. that was just, yeah, that was just awesome. <coughs> Sorry, I don't know what's going on with me today. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> if you want to take like a minute or two to get water or anything, you can. But Yeah, just... Uh... <clears throat> I know you're probably going to edit all that out anyway. Oh, but, no, I'm um, leaving it all in. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, uh, so I got a ride in the T6, and um, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, 
they got to sit in the front and uh he actually uh walked me through on the controls and how to do like a loop and a barrel roll and stuff like that so yeah i was just like all right this has definitely made my decision worthwhile i'm gonna be a pilot (laughs) yeah yeah because at that point I, i had definitely decided in what school i was going to um and what i wanted to do um so yeah i was just like this is definitely for me. <laughs> yeah. So. so you said you de- you already decided what school you're going to. Was that an aviation school? Was it a um, just a normal school that happened to have aviation? Or after that T six ride, you're like, all right, I need to make sure there's aviation at the school. <laughs> uh, no, it was uh, it was definitely um, uh, an aviation specific school. In fact, that's what the school is founded on. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. It's called uh, Daniel Webster College, and it's out of Nashville, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and um, before that, uh, I had mentioned FIT, and uh, um, I was dead set on going there or Emory Riddle or something like that. My parents were like, well, you know, maybe if you choose something a little bit closer, it might be easier to manage just yeah. in case you need to come home or something like that. So I looked locally, found Daniel Webster College, and I started the program there. Um, and it was, a, it was a 141 school that was founded in like the 60s uh, just based on aviation. And they had expanded to more of a, um, you know, technical kind of college. They had a great aeronautical engineering program as well as other, um, technical fields going on there. And, uh, it was 141. And I didn't really realize at the time what 141 actually entailed. No. Um, most people yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it was a bit of a wake up call. And, uh, I ultimately ended up leaving the 141 program. Uh, just kind of figured it wasn't for me. It was coming, uh, increasingly more cost prohibitive to do it that way. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, ended up leaving that program. Um, and I went to part 61 for a school just down the road on the same field there. Um, and, uh, let me put it to you this way. I had been at the college for about, almost two years at that point, And I still hadn't finished the private pilot practicum. Oh, wow. Uh, what was, uh, what do you think was the main reason that you weren't done with the private? Would you say it was the training? Would it say that it just didn't mess with how you learned or was there anything in particular? Yeah, it was actually a combination of things. Um, and of course, looking at back now, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. Um, I could always, you know, say, all right, well, what 18, 19 year old kid, going to college is really going to be that focused on, you know, just solely aviation with a bunch of other things going on around them in a college yeah, especially, environment. Especially <laughs> while you're in college and, uh, yeah, you said you're 21, 20, whatever. So yeah, a lot of other things going on in your mind. It was, yeah, it was that. And then also too, um, for some reason I had a policy of changing your instructor every semester. Yeah. Ohio state um, had that too. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, and then in between that, um, you know, flying, flight schools, you lose instructors, they come and go, you know, like, you know, at the drop of a hat. And uh, so in between that policy is I also get shipped around even more. I think when I look back and counted it later on, um, I had about eight or nine different flight instructors okay. while I was in that program. And two years. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, what stinks about that is, like you said, every semester they're switching your instructor and you're not necessarily going to be finished with a private or your instrument. So someone has a certain way of teaching and then the next semester ends, whether 
prohibited you to take your check ride or whatever it was, then now you have a new guy who doesn't know what you know, doesn't know how to teach you or how you learn. So it takes another three, four flights just for you guys to get on the same page before you can actually start progressing and learning and progressing in your training. Yeah, exactly. It was it was like two step forwards and one step back all the time. Um, and finally, I reached the re-enrollment limit for the practicum. So I said, you know what? Um, I'm just going to cut my losses, go somewhere else. And then uh, so that happened because I would also stay up in the summers and try to fly, too. Um, so I think I left the practicum finally in August of 2009 and about a month later after flying at that part 61 school, uh, with an awesome instructor, um, he, uh, we got my, uh, private squared away by the end of September of that same year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, want, I don't like, or not, I don't like, I don't want people to get it twisted that 141 is better than 61. The only real benefit is that you can get, get on with a regional at a thousand hours or 1250 yeah. hours. That's the only real benefit. Other than that, you're probably going to be paying more, the, it's going to be a little more structured, which does work for some people. That's if you know how to, if that's how you learn, then by all means go for it. But there's nothing against part 61 schools whatsoever. Exactly. And I, and I told the people the same thing in reverse too. Um, there was a mutual follower of mine on Instagram. He posted something saying, Hey, do you think I should go to part 141 or part 61? He's, you know, soliciting advice from people. And, uh, I, my answer was kind of, um, glib in a way i was it might have seemed very jaded at first but then i explained to him a little more i said you know don't do part 141 you know go to a community college you know get a part-time job get your flight ratings on part 61 and he's like oh well never really thought about doing it that way i said all right well you know let me let me explain part 141 you know does have its benefits i'm not saying that it's any better or worse than 61 it all really comes down to you and how you learn um and you have to write down the pros and the cons uh, uh, you know, what you see in each and what do you expect to get out of it? And you also have to, you know, weigh your motivational levels in comparison with everything else that's going on in your life. Um, some people just don't find it a good fit. And that's what happened to me. I mean, I know plenty of part 141 pilots. In fact, uh, one of my old roommates, um, he, uh, he's one of the few people that I know that graduated fully from the complete program at our school. And, uh, now he's a regional captain and he's loving life and yeah. he's an excellent pilot. Um, I know people who've done all their training part 61 too. And, uh, it really they just comes down also to also regional pilots and also loving their life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but they might've saved an extra down. 80 grand. Yeah. Yeah. See, and that's the difference. Um, you know, a lot of, for a lot of people it just comes down to money. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not that it's an unimportant thing, but it's definitely one of the things you have to consider. Well, so. no, and not everyone wants to go the regional or airline route. Like there are other routes out there where you necessarily the fifteen hundred hour or the thousand hours or the twelve hundred hours isn't really going to help you out too much. So, yeah, yeah, and uh, even when I was going um, to school, those uh, regulations and those lower minimums actually really weren't in place at that time. Yeah. Um, so this was about two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, when everything was just tanking and uh, we would hear stories about, uh, uh, you know, guys who haven't even finished the, uh, the program um, guys and girls who haven't even finished the program. We got people like Piedmont uh, coming <laughs> to our school, bringing a dash a and hiring people on the spot. And they haven't even passed their commercial multi-ride yet. Crazy. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, it wasn't until uh, after Colgan happened where all that came into effect. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was just it was just a wild time to even you know be thinking of pursuing aviation um, as a career, and uh, you know people wrote it out and they're they're doing pretty well now for yeah, it. So for sure, I mean, I've talked to another podcast where when I first started training, it was in 2010. And everyone was telling me not to do it. It's like, whatever you yep. do, don't become a pilot. And it's like, well, I understand why you're upset. And I understand why you could come from that. But that actually turned out to be the best time to start training and start becoming a pilot. It's, it's just like the stock market. You want to get in on the dip and you want to exit on the high. So yeah, we got in that's on the a dip. perfect analogy. Yeah, we got, we're in on the dip and hopefully we can exit on the high. And I mean, we can't really control much of that. It was just dumb luck and good timing. But that's what it's all about sometimes. Yeah, yeah. My dad even said to me because all that stuff was coming out after Colgan about fatigue and flop houses and crash houses and stuff like that. He's like, "You, you sure you want to do this, right?" I'm like, "Yep, <laughs> yeah, I still want to go through with it." So, yeah, I mean, once you once you taste aviation and once you go flying, it's it's hard to really compare it to anything else. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So uh, you said you got your training done. You finished within a month, and um, you had the same instructor. Did you have the same instructor for all the rest of your ratings? No. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, you know, now that, of course, looking back on it still, um, you know, it's not that unusual to have multiple instructors, but, uh, for, you know, different ratings, but, um, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, no, I didn't have him. Um, so basically what had happened is actually, um, why I reached out to you in the first place and wanted, kind of wanted to share my story. Um, was uh, I started my instrument rating right after my private with the same instructor. Um, great guy named Andrew, and I think he's flying a Falcon 2000 or something right now. It's got a pretty pretty sweet gig. Yeah. Uh, um, but anyway, uh, I started flying with Andrew, uh, getting into my uh, instrument rating. We are pretty far along. Um, I had passed the written test, and I was probably a couple more lessons away from being signed off for the check ride. And, uh, so I was flying when I was up there at school. I just ride my bike down to the uh, flight school cause it was just right across the street and down the road. Um, and, uh, so anyway, uh, spring semester ends, I go home for the summer and say, okay, we'll catch up when I come back and uh, I might come up, you know, a couple times during the summer just to stick with it. <clears throat> so, uh, what ended up happening, um, this is the summer of 2010. Uh, it was actually kind of a rough summer for me. <laughs> um, I went home and I worked and, uh, I was holding down two jobs. Um, just, you know, summer type things and working 12 to 18 hours a day between the two of them, um, five, six days a week. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to set this up for a soft story or anything, but, uh, I had some personal, <laughs> I had some uh, personal stuff going on in my life at the time as well. And, um, I just basically kind of found myself in a place that, uh, you know, wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, and I realized, you know, that you know, something wasn't quite wrong with me. So I decided to talk with somebody about it. And in August of 2010, I started taking, uh, a medication SSRI. Um, and, uh, basically it was, it was Prozac essentially. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, uh, uh, off-brand Prozac. Um, and, uh, it was a relatively low dosage. Um, so I'm getting ready to go back to school and, you know, resume my flying and stuff like that. Um, 
And so I just said, okay, you know, let me just make sure that this isn't one of those medications on the FAA no-fly list. So I was doing a bit of research, and lo and behold, that same year, around that very same time, um, the FAA came out with a new ruling about uh, pilots uh, flying with SSRIs and how um, they retreated from now on. And basically what had happened to me uh, was I saw I had to voluntary, voluntarily surrender my medical certificate. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, so that happened. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I followed all the rules. I surrendered my medical certificate by the date that I needed to. And, um, just the bureaucracy and the BS started happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I sent that in and I got, uh, um, paperwork back from the regional flight surgeon for the new England region. And for the life of me, I couldn't really figure out, um, what I needed to do to get my medical bag, just reading through the paperwork. So I finally contacted the office and the office is in the FAA or your local FISDO. Who'd you call? Who'd you talk to? Uh, the actual regional flight surgeon for the new England area. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. No big yeah, deal. And I actually talked, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually talked to him directly and, Basically, what was told to me was that, well, this is so brand new within the FAA that uh, nobody's really sure about the guidelines of how to get these pilots their medicals back. So, um, (laughs) yeah. Are you just going to take medicals away from someone that's trying to do their career and then not have a guideline or a plan for them to get it back? Exactly. And that was um, exactly how I felt. And it was just... It was kind of like a crushing blow. You know, here I was on top of the world. I was ready to get my next rating, you know, know, just keep my, keep the momentum going in my career. And this happens. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'll just wait it out and just do what I need to do. Um, but anyway, yeah, the flight surgeon, he, uh, he said that, uh, well, whatever's worded in the letter that we sent you is what's going to have to happen. And the way it was interpreted between myself and him, um, was that, uh, I needed to stabilize on the medication for a year. And then if I were to come off the medication, I needed another almost 12 month period to be stabilized off of that. And then I had to submit a whole bunch of paperwork from, uh, the recommending therapist, uh, sorry, therapist, uh, physician and any other medical history I've had, you know, while I've been on this medication. And, um, yeah. <laughs> so when you say so, stabilized, you just had to be on the medication for a year to prove that no adverse side effects were coming through this and that you you could function completely fine with it? Exactly. And okay. that was the intent um, behind it. And again, everything that you know, we're probably going to talk about today uh, is, is from the view of hindsight. And it's always going to be clear now. But uh, yeah, so that was the intention of it. But I had multiple people look at the, the paperwork that they sent me. And I've got I had like three different interpretations of exactly what it all meant. Um, so my plan F from there, there on was basically just to put the flying on hold, of course, um, focus on graduating college and, you know, just set myself up, um, to hit the ground running as soon as I could get flying again. And, uh, so I took the medication for a year and did a bunch of research on, you know, people in my particular position. And I found, that uh, it wasn't without reason. Um, you know, the FAA had very good precedent 
to kind of put these limitations on people. Yeah. Uh, it's just at the time when they rolled it out, it, and it's very typical um, of the FAA, and I understand the reasoning for the FAA's existence, but uh, it just seems like a lot of the policies and things that they have in place are kind of, all right, uh, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. Um, okay. You know, yeah. just enact, enact these policies and, you know, figure everything out uh, later on. Um, you know, figure out the details. And uh, I found that there are a lot of cases with uh, a lot of pilots in similar conditions um, and people who had been taking this exact medication, taking very high dosages of them, um, basically being wholly unstable to fly aircraft in general, um, actually causing accidents because of this kind of stuff. And they were jumping around from medication to medication. And so I could begin to see why the FAA want to sort of regulate this and put it in check. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, things like German wings happened uh, a couple of years later, um, which didn't make this any better for people under this, uh, you know, regulation. But anyway, um, so I took the medication for almost exactly a year and I got off of it. And then that's when, uh, the red tape started to manifest itself again. <laughs> um, so I called up the same flight surgeon's office and I knew that some of the rulings and things like that had changed and the interpretation of the regulations were different. And uh, basically what I was told, because I uh, waited until about six to eight months after I was off the medication to start submitting everything again, um, I was basically told that, oh, well, you only had to take it for a year and you could still be on it. Um, <laughs> you just need to provide medication that you weren't going to, you know, or documentation that you weren't going to get really sad and, you know, plow the aircraft into a mountain or something like that. Um, uh, so I was like, well, that would have been nice to know six <laughs> months ago. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so at that time I was actually working as a ramp supervisor for, uh, UPS's Manchester, New Hampshire gateway okay um and in that time i met my now wife and uh she was actually really the one that told me you know why did you start looking into this and you know get back to flying again um so under her uh coaching and you know support uh i got everything together and uh what essentially i had to do was uh go back to where I grew up in Connecticut to my primary physician at that time, back home in Connecticut, get paperwork from him, get paperwork from the therapist I was seeing at that time. Um, basically had all these documents together, send it to the FAA. And I put a whole packet together, cover letter and anything and, um, sent it out to Oklahoma city and it just waited. Um, so after about two months, uh, they sent me a letter back saying, okay, um, we've reviewed everything. Uh, you're good to go. Just be, you know, advised if you do experience any symptoms again, or if you do end up taking this medication again, uh, you'll be subject to the same restrictions you were before. Um, you have to fork your medical, all that stuff. Uh, so great. Um, I was flying again. World's is good. <laughs> yeah. Um, how long so, did it, how long was the whole process between when you had to surrender your medical to where you got your medical back? Uh, probably about 18 months. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So almost, almost two years. 
uh, I was applying. <laughs> That's a long time, especially since you said that you were you were close to taking your IFR check ride, and your IFR written almost expired by that time. And who knows if it did expire? Because who, yeah. who knows how long it's to take you to get back to feel comfortable with taking an IFR check ride? I mean, that's one of the toughest check rides there is. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, yeah, no, and that's what I was worried about too. But uh, I, uh, my my test was still, you know, within uh, the time period it hadn't expired yet, um, and uh, thankfully I did pretty well on that written test. Um, I think you got like an 82 on some, or something on it. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah. So, uh, I wasn't too worried about the knowledge part. And, uh, basically what happened was, um, I went up with another new instructor because my old one had moved on to bigger, better things. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I went up with another instructor and it was just kind of like riding a bike. Um, we went up and, uh, we shot an ILS my first day back. And, uh, he's like, if you were to do that on check right right now, obviously there'd be a little more things to scrutinize you over. Um, but on the whole, you'd probably pass with that ILS alone. Oh, nice. So you're and, natural. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like to brag, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I finished up my instrument and I actually took a little while to do that because it started dragging my feet. Um, I had a career change and now I'm, you know, managing a relationship. Um, you know, and we were living at separate, uh, places at the time. We had a long distance relationship and, uh, managing my career UPS and also coming to where I'm working now. Um, so I had that shift come and then finally I just kind of hammered down and said, all right, I'm going to finish up this instrument and just going to keep going from there. And, uh, by the time my instrument check ride actually came about, I actually ended up taking with a DP8. I took my private check ride with, mm-hmm. um, and, but anyway, by the time that came around, I was like, all right, uh, this is pretty much going to set the pace for, you know, everything from here on out. If I don't pass this check ride, then, you know, maybe I should start reevaluating what my goals are. Um, and maybe think of something maybe a little more realistic, but if I do pass the check ride, you know, green light and balls to the wall, you know, just keep going with everything. Uh, so ultimately I did pass my check ride. Hey, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I was like, awesome. Yeah. Good. I, can, I can keep flying now. Yeah. And um, you're like, crap. Now I got to spend so much money to get my commercial. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so I passed my instrument check ride. Uh, everything was right in the world. Jump right into the commercial. Um, passed that about a year later. And then, um, shortly after my commercial check ride, um, I lost my medical for a second time. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? Um, so, uh, I think it was about, yeah, it was 2016. Yeah. Okay. So in March of 2016, uh, I found a lump in my neck, um, right around where my thyroid is. And, uh, for people who, might not know what your thyroid is. Basically, it's kind of like a regulatory valve for a lot of the enzymes and hormones that are used for your metabolism. And uh, a few years prior to that, um, when I was on a regular physical checkup, uh, the doctor had noticed uh, some small bumps and I had biopsies and everything came back fine. They said it was probably just a condition that you know some people have and people just exist with them. Nothing good or bad ever happens with it. Um, but anyway, 
flash forward to 2016 again, um, I had a cold and I was feeling my neck. And it was a pretty substantial lump on my neck and it was actually quite visible. So from March all through that summer, um, I was getting tests done and biopsies and, you know, they're draining it. And there's a whole bunch of gross stuff going on <laughs> that year. Um, and then finally, uh, the doctor I was seeing, your nose and throat specialist, he said, well, why don't we go in there and actually take that side out and biopsy the actual half of your thyroid uh so that's what they did uh and then on halloween of 2016 that's when i actually received the cancer diagnosis uh it was called papillary thyroid cancer okay uh and i was told at the time if you're going to get cancer this is the one to get oh really <laughs> basically yeah yeah like, basically yay <laughs> like am i supposed to be happy yeah. about that <laughs> Exactly. exactly. I'm like, well, it's cancer, (laughs) but is this like, you know, what are we talking here? And uh, it was explained to me that, uh, you know, it's not like, um, you know, a huge deal. The, you know, success rates are extremely high and and it's quite common in um, middle-aged and older uh, women. And uh, there's a lower instance of it in men. Um, But anyway, um, so they went out and they took the other half of my thyroid out just in case the cancer had spread to the left side. Yeah. So um, I don't have a thyroid. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The hormones and things like that that a thyroid produces in a normal person, uh, I have to supplant uh, synthetically now. Uh, But anyway, of course, my immediate thought is what's going to happen to my medical? Yeah. (laughs) You're like not a, uh, not again. I just had to lo- I just had to go through the whole process again. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it uh, it was definitely I, I felt a lot of the same emotions that I did the last time I lost my medical, and um, you know, it's just when when you're totally going to be grounded again, it's just it's really crushing. Um, but thankfully, I had been around the block before, um, so I had an idea of what to do. And also I had another resource at my disposal at this time, um, a coworker of mine, uh, who spent some time in the same office I was working in. Uh, he was working with us because he had a very similar, uh, disease. He had cancer. It was, it was much more um, severe than mine was, but it was like in a similar area and he had similar treatments. Uh, so I contacted him and, uh, basically what he said to do was just to wait, uh, get all the treatments and everything that you need to have it removed, make sure that it's in remission, um, and get all the documentation you can before telling the FDA, because what's going to happen is that no matter when you tell them you have it, they're still going to send you that big scary letter saying, all right, you've lost your medical, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you can get it back. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, and this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize when you have straight medical issues. And I'm not telling anybody to hide anything from the FAA or anything like that. Right. But when you have certain medical issues or things like that, that can disqualify you from holding a medical, um, it's all voluntary. You don't have to tell the FAA or AME right away. 
Um, so what he suggested was that I voluntarily ground myself, basically meaning that for the entire time I'm receiving treatment, I'd still keep my medical, but I would not exercise the privileges granted to me by it. Gotcha. And so, you exactly- didn't, so you didn't fly when you were going through all that stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I did not touch an airplane that entire time, um, which was tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I legally at that point, I had the ability to fly an airplane. Um, but it's kind of different when somebody else is imposing these restrictions on you versus when you're imposing them on yourself. Yeah. Um, so for about six months there, when I was getting everything in order, I saw my medical and I did not fly that entire time. Um, then finally I did what I had done the last time. I got a whole packet together, got everything. I said, you know, this is my diagnosis. This is what I have. This is what's happening with me now. Here's my medical. Do what you will. And I waited <laughs> again. Did it take about two um, months again for them to get back to you? Yeah. So I think all told the entire process was about seven months. Yeah. About seven from when months. you sent it in or from when you actually got the diagnosis and you grabbed so it. When yourself. I actually got the diagnosis. Okay. I was going to say, it's like they waited on that for seven months. No, okay. no, no. And that's actually what I was worried about too, because, um, my coworker that was kind of gathering through this, um, that is exactly what happened to him. His, uh, cancer and his, um, uh, disease that he had was so rare and the FAA didn't have any real instances or anything, um, to set a precedent with in his situation. And basically what they did was they strung him along. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, he was, you know, guiding me on the basis of, you know, what not to do and how to handle things. Um, and really what it came down to in his case was that, uh, uh, he threatened them with legal action saying, Hey, if there's no particular reason why you can't give me my medical back now, even though I've proven to you that my cancer has been in remission for over a year, um, you're going to get sued. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what happened with him was, was that somebody from Oklahoma city called him and was like, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. We, we can work something out. That's, that's um, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that would have been the worst case scenario for me. Yeah. Um, and thankfully that didn't happen, but I was prepared to go down that road if I yeah. needed to. So what did happen? Um, what, uh, what was the, the full timeline and the series of events that happened? So yeah, I was diagnosed in, uh, Halloween 2016. Um, after they did the first biopsy on the right side, a couple of weeks later, they took the left side out. Uh, and then, uh, with this kind of cancer, there's really not much you could do, but besides watch it, um, wasn't any chemotherapy involved, uh, thankfully. Yeah. And, uh, after about four or five months, um, of not flying, I started getting my ducks in a row, started seeing all the physicians I needed to see. And thankfully this time, um, because I established myself in New Hampshire and being living here as a resident for quite some time, I had all my doctors, you know, up here so I didn't have to travel anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say about around April or so, I sent, uh, April 2017, I sent everything to them. And then a month later, uh, I was back in the saddle in May. Uh, and what they s- did was they issued me a, uh, limitation on my medical certificate saying that, um, uh, I can't 
uh, hold anything less than a first class medical after 12 months. Okay. Um, but in the original documentation that they sent me, they said I needed to get um, an examination every six months in between, almost like they were treating it like I was uh, a person who was over 40. Right. With a first class medical, which would make sense if that's how old I was. So, yeah. Um, so in the eyes of the FAA, you're a, you're a 45 year old man. <laughs> well, yeah. See, that's the thing. I, uh, I was like, this isn't right. Um, so in September of 2017, right about the six months mark where I would have needed to, uh, you know, get that six month examination, I went and, you know, did all that stuff anyway in my position is just because that's what I needed to do. But uh, I called the regional flight surgeon's office, same guy I had talked to four or five years beforehand. You probably have him on speed dial now. Yeah, right. No, send him I, some Christmas cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. actually, you know, right where his office is, just because I've sent so much crap to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually located right outside ZBW in Nashua. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so I contacted somebody from his office. I didn't talk to him directly at that time, which was probably for the better. Um but uh, somebody from his office just said, all right, well, we'll look into it because clearly you're not over 40. You were born in 1989. Right. <laughs> um, so we'll resubmit everything for you. And then, uh, again, about a month later, I got another notice from Oklahoma City saying, okay, yeah, you're right. We're wrong. Um, shocking for the FAA, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're like, yeah, you're right. Uh, we're wrong. And we'll... Um, you know, reissue your medical certificate again. You only have to get a first class medical every single year, um, provided, you know, that your condition is stable and, you know, doesn't recur. Um, and, uh, just get a first class medical until we just tell you to stop getting one. And that's <laughs> kind of where I am now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, so I can fly? Check. I just need to get a first class medical? Check. All right. I don't need to talk to you guys anymore? Check. <laughs> yeah, See ya. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was just that that whole time period was just such a weird time. Um, I had gotten my commercial the year before, right? Or actually, no, I got my commercial that year. And then um, my wife and I uh, started having a family. And um, that was actually, yeah, so we, uh, we got pregnant. And then uh, August of that year, right when, you know, um, the tail end of this was going on was actually when I first reached out to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that happened and then I just kept the ball rolling from there on out. And I uh, got my commercial multi, uh, September of last year. Uh, had my son in August that year. Oh, dang. And, yeah. There's yeah. a lot been going on for you, huh? <laughs> yeah. I got my yeah. CFI back in April. Nice. <laughs> um, I've already had two flying jobs since then. Nice. And, so you're uh, killing it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to think so. I've yeah. been working pretty hard to get to this point. Would so. you say it sounded like when you were telling your story a little bit that maybe you kind of talked about how you just kind of put off the training a little bit. Would you say that this is lit a spark or a fire more in you? Like, all right, I got to get this done. And it's like really been like, all right, I got to get this done now type deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, that's, that's a perfect way of describing it. So after I got my medical back the first time, um, I was just kind of, you know, jaded with the entire aviation community mm-hmm. um, and just seeing people who are younger than me than I, you know, I know sort of flight training after me moving on to these jobs and I'm like here I am mid twenties and I still haven't done anything yet. Right. Um, and it, 
eventually it, uh, I just, you know, said to myself, right, I got to stop worrying about what everybody else is doing. I have things going on. I'm beginning to start a life now, you know, yeah. moving more into establishing myself in my career. Um, so I just got to push through. And again, I, I credit, you know, my wife and everybody else who has helped me, uh, in the past, but uh, she was a huge motivator to basically get my ass in gear and <laughs> make everything done. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, we, we made a couple deals with each other. I said, okay, um, you know, we'll, we'll schedule our wedding for, you know, after I pass my instrument check ride. And then, um, we'll, uh, actually, I, pr- I proposed to her a month after my instrument check ride. Oh, nice. And then, um, uh, I said, all right, we'll start trying to have kids after I pass my commercial check ride. And that's exactly what happened. That's crazy. And, uh, yeah. So by setting these goals and stuff, um, that, uh, uh, really kind of pushed me and made me make this a viable career choice for myself. Uh, yeah. In fact, that was, you know, the main reason why I pushed myself to get my CFI done because, yeah. um, you know, nobody, I wouldn't say nobody, but, uh, very few people get into flight instructing because that's what they want to base their career on. And if you yep. want to do that, that's great. Um, By all means, we need more people like that, you know, yeah. more people that love it, but it's just, it's just how you build your time. You know, it's just, that's just yep. where the aviation industry is and how you build hours. And that's just right now, it's kind of just a, a stepping stone for everyone, but we need more yeah. people that want to do it forever, but obviously not everyone wants to get paid like a flight instructor forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I actually did try the survey thing for a little while. Oh really? Um, yeah. What'd you yeah. think of that? Uh, I think I would have enjoyed it more if I actually got more work. So oh, okay. I joined it, uh, pretty much in the dead of winter in oh, New yeah. England. That's a terrible time. <laughs> yeah. Awful yeah, time. exactly. <laughs> um, and I think my, Thinking behind that was like, all right, I'll exhaust all the options I have before going to flight instructing. Yeah. Um, so I got on with this outfit uh, out of Massachusetts, and I was hired as their part-time guy. And um, I was told that I'd be, you know, the local guy because you know I live locally, and uh, you know what the majority of my job would consist of would be just testing all the sensors and stuff like that before they send them out in actual contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was cool for a while for the times so I, I was able to fly. Um, I got to fly turbocharged 206s. Oh, yeah. Uh, a really, uh, really old 182. Oh, there's um, nothing new about survey flying whatsoever. No. <laughs> and no, there's, no. there's nothing, there's nothing called maintenance in survey flying either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I didn't really care to be honest. It was like, all right, somebody's paying me to yeah. fly. You know, the first time you lift those wheels off the ground and you realize, hey, I'm not going to have to cut a check for this at the exactly. end. Exactly. Um, that's cool. But uh, uh, just the work for me was few and far in between. And I was kind of taking a financial hit. And it wasn't really anything against the company itself. I was just like, hey, it's putting me in a position where I can't really, you know, manage my finances that well. Because I would only get paid for when I would show up at the airport. Right. And... Uh, if they didn't have any really work, they would tell me not to show up at the airport. So, you know, there you go. Sounds very familiar. Um, yeah, yeah. And actually, around that time, I was uh, listening to your podcast quite regularly. Um, I mean, I've listened to every episode you had, but uh, <laughs> the two in the two in particular that were really actually kind of getting me through that time were um, uh, Kevin and, and Kurt's episodes. Yeah. The video. Um, 
because, you know, just listening to their stories of just like, all right, you know, <laughs> uh, I think uh, Kurt was talking about how guys used to sell plasma and, uh, yeah. you know, sleep in the airport and stuff like that. Crazy. And, Shave know. in the bathroom of the airport. It's like, oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I'm like, all right, it could be a lot worse. Yeah. You know, you, you don't complain, just, you know, move on to the next thing. If it's not working. And that's really where the CFI thing came into play. I said, all right, well, now I have a family to support. Now I need to do something. Yeah, and, you can't, uh, you can't put stuff off anymore when you have a family. It changes the game completely. Yeah. So the CFI thing was kind of like a, a do or die situation again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I got that and, uh, I'm glad I did it because at least now, um, no matter what happens with the industry or jobs or something like that, I will at least have, always have something to fall back on, exactly. uh, a way to make money through flying. So, um, yeah, so I've been uh, doing that since uh, about April. You know, I really liked, uh, we kind of talked about a little bit what you said. It's two things. It's um, We talked about kind of lighting the fire and the spark and stuff, and it was how it was really hard for you to see everyone else progressing in their career whether it was uh-huh. aviation related or it was aviation, because I think that's something that everyone can agree with that uh-huh. aviation and flying is just, it's different than everything else. You know, it's more similar to being a doctor or being a dentist or something like that, where it's delayed gratification. It's, you're not going to be making a hundred grand. You're not going to be making 200 grand for a long time. It's going to be a lot of yeah. crappy flying jobs. It's going to be a lot of early mornings. So, I mean, aviation is always early mornings, but it's just be a lot of stuff yeah. you don't want to do where you have friends that you went to college with who are going out of college and they're making 60 grand and they're making 80 grand by the time they're like 25, 28, whatever. And you're still making like 50 or you're still flight instructing and stuff like that. But it is so worth it. Aviation is one of those things that you just got to put in your time. It's like you said, Kurt and Drizzle, they put in their time too. They slept on park benches or whatever they did, sold plasma so they could pay for stuff. It's like, yeah, you're we're in the same time that they were back then. Like it's just, we all have to put in our time, pay our dues, and eventually we're going to be living how they are now. We're going to be flying for American, flying for Delta, flying for our dream jobs, that kind of thing. So always keep your eye on the prize. Don't worry about what other people are doing. It's very hard, especially with Instagram and social media, but just focus on what you're doing. And then the second thing that was important was that you said that your wife was just a great helper for you and that she helped motivate you and help push you. It is so important to have someone that's on your side. It's so important to have either a mentor or buddies or someone that just understands what aviation industry is about and how to navigate through it, to understand the ups and the downs. And you need someone there to constantly push you consistently. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think you're not alone. That's everyone. Everyone needs those Uh things and everyone needs to understand that to make it in this career. Yeah, definitely. And I will say I've, I've been very fortunate to have been surrounded by a lot of caring and uh, motivating people in my life. Um, my parents, uh, my grandfather and, you know, my wife. Um, I would say all those, you know, forces combined, including a lot of the friends that I've had, uh, coming up, um, have been, you know, more than, uh, helpful, you know, with, in terms of progressing my career, um, even my coworkers here in the office now, um, they're always asking how I'm doing, always willing to help me study, um, stuff like that. And I would say that's probably half the battle is just surrounding yourself with positive influences and surrounding yourself with people, uh, who understand what you're going through and understand that, um, you know, you, you basically have had this dream and you want to complete it. And by them being so understanding and willing to, um, 
you know, help you put in the work, it puts you in a position to pay them back tenfold down the line. And, you know, that's actually, you know, really what my goal is, is to be able to one day just be able to pay it forward either, you know, back to them or to somebody else, you know, that's up and coming. Yeah, for sure. uh, And that's one of the duties that we have because there are people that paved the way for us and we got information, we got jobs, we got any kind of help from the people that have done this before us. And now it is our turn to give back to the up and coming flight school guys, just any CFI, whatever, just always, always pay it back. Yeah. And that that's also, you know, one of the things too, I mean, I'm sure you've probably known by now, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of your work and your podcast, but uh, guys like, you know, uh, Kevin and Kurt and uh, you know, like Logan flood too. Um, yeah. Uh, Gizzy, all those people, you know, just listening to all their stories. And that's what really attracted me to, you know, listening to this program was just, you know, everybody has some kind of BS that they have to go through, um, uh, be it physical or mental barriers. Um, and just as long as you keep that driving, you, know, you keep that fire, um, you, you're going to make it. It's going to take a while. And you also said too, <laughs> social media is making it harder nowadays. You see like these 20 year old kids in the right seats of like triple sevens and stuff yeah, like that. It's like, what and the just heck? Like, ah, yeah. Like, oh man, I'm, I'm almost 30 years old and I'm, I'm trying to get a seat in Pilates right exactly. now. <laughs> but, hey, that's a, uh, that's a good seat to be in, man. Don't, don't talk crap about the Pilates. <laughs> oh, trust me. I'm yeah, not by yeah. any means. Um, yeah. I'm actually quite looking forward to that. Cool. So that's awesome. Well, Hey man, I, um, what was I going to say? What? So, all right, here's a hypothetical situation. Someone listens to this podcast. They're going through some medical issues where they're just losing their medical now and they reach out to you. What would you, what kind of information do you want to give people right now about what they need to think about, what they need to go through, the steps they need to take to inform the FAA, to take action or how to get their medical back, just that whole process. What would you tell someone that's getting ready to go through all the process that you've gone through? Yeah. Um, Get your ducks in a row first. Uh, I would say for my benefit, uh, for my experience rather, that the, the process of voluntarily grounding yourself um, while waiting for all the treatments and everything um, to be finished definitely uh, helped my case. Um, so just wait. Um, it might suck to ground yourself. But uh, if you do that, at least you're showing the FAA that you're being a responsible airman and saying, okay, I have a known medical condition. I'm not going to fly until I know how it will affect me and how the FAA interprets it. Um, uh, the other thing I would say, too, is uh, take advantage of all the resources that are out there. Um, there are pilot advocacy groups, um, AOPA, um, if you're part of a airline union or if you work for a company that sets you up with a, uh, a legal advocacy group, definitely take advantage of that. See what their interpretation of the uh, paperwork and the language the FAA send you is. And uh, if you end up going down a road where you need to take legal action against the FAA, uh, Definitely use that resources to the best of your ability, especially if you're part of a company that will pay for that for you. Um, I know the company that I work for now, uh, we're not unionized, but they do have a group where it is essentially a paid advocacy group where they do take those legal actions for you. They basically work for as a union, but not on a union pretext. Um, gotcha. So t- take advantage of those resources and 
uh, definitely don't be afraid to have other people uh, look at uh, what is given to you and get their interpretations on it because it it uh, it only helps to um, gain more viewpoints and kind of take everything what everybody's saying and put your own spin on it. Um, because I think what the big thing that happened to me the first time I lost my medical was uh, I only took one person's word for it. And that's basically what I based my process off of for about a year and a half. And come to find out, I could have done everything a lot sooner. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those were probably two biggest things I would, I would say is that, you know, definitely wait, make sure you have everything lined up and then also take advantage of all resources at your disposal to be able to get your medical back. Um, yeah, those are the two biggest things. And also, again, um, you admitting this again, and I'm not telling anybody to hide anything from the FAA, but it's voluntary. voluntary. You tell them when you decide to tell them. Um, again, you know, it's, it's in the FARs. You can't fly with no medical condition. Right. But, you know, you don't want to be stripped prematurely of that if you don't have to be. Right. So you're not saying to fly with an illness. You're just saying that don't tell them to lose your medical, like still ground yourself, but hold off on telling them all the facts until you know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Because it doesn't really matter on when you tell them, um, they're still going to send you the same big, scary FAA letter that they send to you. No matter if you grounded yourself for six months beforehand, or if you grounded yourself right off the bat. So no matter what, that's not going to change. Um, and yeah, I'm not telling anybody to fly with a known, you know, medical issue. Yeah. Um, put yourself on the ground, um, before they do it to you is basically what I'm saying. Okay, cool. Uh, just wanted just to clarify to, for anyone that's listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want anybody to do that. Yeah. You can fly <laughs> um, on drugs. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the internet is a great resource now. Um, uh, there's a couple places that have a published list of FAA medications and there's a whole bunch of forums out there, uh, for people's varying experiences of dealing with the FAA for this. Um, yeah, just, uh, Sweet. yeah. <laughs> Perfect, man. Well, I appreciate that. I think that's someone listening. I mean, cause I'm, you're probably not alone. Like people have gone through the same things that I'm, you're going to go, you went through or might have a more intense case of whatever it was. So I think that listening uh-huh. to that. And hearing that can definitely help. I mean, I know that it's unfortunate for the things that happened to you, and I'm sure you're not happy that anything happened to you, but I'm also, I would be willing to bet that you've learned a lot from it and the knowledge Uh that you have from that. Now it's your turn to go share that for other people because other people are going to be going through that and they need to know what you went through and how to combat that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's kind of funny that you say that Um, since I've had my issues with my medical I've run into more people who have had the medicals taken away just because they um, maybe said, you know, too much to an AME or, um, you know, just off the cuff, just kind of mentioned casually that they might have taken something when they were in high school. I actually had a student um, who has just coming off of his medical being suspended because he told an AME uh, when he had his medical certificate that he took, you know, Adderall for a month when he was in like fifth grade. Jeez. And this guy's like in his mid twenties now. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, That's crazy. It's crazy that yeah. you can suspend something that was so long ago. Yep. Yeah. And uh, those are becoming more and more common nowadays. So uh, I know it's frustrating 
trust me <laughs> i've been there twice yeah but in the end um you just have to put faith in the process and do everything that you know you know beyond a doubt that you can do in order to uh get back flying again exactly and i appreciate you sharing all that i appreciate you being vulnerable i know it's not easy to to talk about that kind of stuff so i really appreciate that and um what like so you're cfi now you're building your hours what's next like what is what is your goal what are your plans what's your next stop and what's your your goal down the line uh, so yeah, um, building time as a CFI and, uh, right now I have a, uh, class date, uh, to start ground school for a 91 K slash 135 operator. Nice. Um, starting in September. Uh, I'm sure if you look at my social media or you, know, you and I have talked about this, uh, we can figure probably it out. just, yeah, you can probably yeah. figure it out. Gotcha. <laughs> um, but, uh, I've been working for this company for the past four years now and they've taken pretty good care of me. And, uh, I, you know, joined this company with the intent of flying four years ago. Um, so I'm going to be taking that step in the fall and hopefully everything will go well. And, uh, it's becoming a pretty exciting time now for us. Uh, our jet program's getting off the ground and, uh, everything's starting to come together. So I hope to be a part of that. And, uh, I used to say that my, uh, my dream job would be, you know, flying for UPS or FedEx, you know, on a wide body going, you know, intercontinental and stuff like that but uh, honestly um my goal if i really think about it is just to be able to support myself and my family through flying yeah and that's all i ever really want there you go that's awesome man that's a, that's a good goal to have and uh, i don't think you're alone in having that goal yeah cool well i want to do uh, a quick little rapid fire section if you're all right with that definitely cool man <laughs> all right um I don't really know the questions I'm going to ask, so I'm just going to go ahead and just start and see where we go. A lot of them probably have been asked before, but we'll go from there. You ready? Uh, yeah, shoot. All right. What's your favorite airplane you've ever flown? This might become of a shock. Um, probably the Piper Arrow. <laughs> okay. When I was doing my commercial, up until I flew the Pilatus, or no, the 310, the Piper Arrow is my favorite plane to fly. Yeah. A lot of people a lot of people crap on it. Um but it, it was it was really the first plane that I got into that I was like, oh man, I feel like a pilot. You yeah. know, I got low the gear wing, going up. Yeah. It's a low wing. Um, I got all I got I got an extra lever I got to pull now. Yep. Um, yeah, no, I, I liked flying that airplane a lot. That's exactly so. how I felt too. Yeah. What is your least favorite airplane? Uh, just based off a of look, so the ugliest airplane. <laughs> uh, probably the Piaggio. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, that's my, I mean, the plane's freaking awesome. It can go so fat. The things it can do are incredible, but yeah. it is just hideous. So it, I'm sorry if you love, if anyone out there loves the Piaggio, it is an ugly airplane. <laughs> you, you know, and the more people I talk to about that plane, um, yeah, it can do some fantastic things, but I just hear that it's, you know, on the ground more than it's in the air. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know much about yeah. it at all. All I know is that it's a beast and it can fly high and can do a lot, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when it works, and then, uh, we actually had one come into uh, Sanford where I instruct SFM. Um, we were watching it coming on the short runway, and it, it comes screaming in, and come to find out, like uh, the minimum controllable speed in that thing is like 110, but approach speed is like 120. Oh wow! And they're landing on like a 3,500 foot runway. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff. So. That's funny. The jet I fly right now, our ref speed, our uh, landing speed was, the last time I've landed was 97. Whew. Yeah. So it's funny just to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 
right. What is your favorite airline? Uh, I think it's a it's a tie between Iceland Air and JetBlue. Okay. Do you like um, nose wheel or tailwheel? I've only got two hours in tailwheel, so probably nose wheel. <laughs> yeah. Piper or Cessna? Cessna all the way. Ooh, even though your favorite airplane that you've flown is a Piper? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like 90% of my time is in the Cessna. Yeah. You, can, you can just do more things with them. Yeah. So. What is your favorite airline livery? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I really like the American um, kind of throwback one. Uh, they painted like a 737 in like an old DC-3 library. Yeah. It was like polished silver with the orange stripe. That was pretty slick. Yeah, those are cool. Would you rather fly over mountains, the beach, or the country? Uh, living in New England, yeah, or flying around here, you get a mix of all three, but I would probably have to say just for scenery um mountains yeah i like mountains too what's your favorite airport that you've flown into favorite airport that i've flown into um even though it was probably the busiest airport i've ever been to i would say farmingdale frg and that's only because when i was holding short for about a half hour (laughs) uh i got to uh be on the ramp next to that museum that they have there yeah and uh, i got to look at all the cool planes and it was like oh cool i'm, I'm sharing a taxiway with the dc3 right now that's, that's awesome cool. <laughs> oh, yeah what's the most challenging airport you've ever been to there's this little strip in here in new, in new hampshire called hawthorne feather i think the identifier is eight bravo zero mm-hmm. and it's a three thousand foot strip so it's not too short but uh there's like 50 foot trees, you know, less than 100 feet off both ends of the runway. Yeah. Um, and then off to one side, depending on what side you're approaching on. And then it's at the base of, uh, kind of like a mountain range there over by, um, Mount Monadnock. And the wind's just whipping in and out of there. And, um, yeah, if you look over to the side when you're, uh, you're on, you're on short final there. You're you're probably about to hit the trees. Uh-huh. Um, so that, yeah. <laughs> that, that's probably one of the, uh, most no big, challenging airports have been to. <laughs> no big deal, right? It's just trees and an airplane. They mix very well together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I uh, I went to uh, Nantucket, um, and I would say that would probably be challenging just because of just all the traffic in there. It was on yeah. the weekend this summer, which is like a madhouse. But uh, um, just in terms of sheer topography alone, I would say Hawthorne Feather definitely. Cool. Uh, last one I have is what is your favorite airport food? Ooh. <laughs> Um, oh, there's quite a bit. <laughs> uh, probably Chinese food. Ooh, it's mine's, easy and you don't. Yeah, mine's Chick Fil A. If you don't have a Chick Fil A, I don't consider you a real airport. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to plenty of non-real airports. I know, <laughs> don't me get, too. <laughs> don't get much Chick Fil A up here. <laughs> yeah, I know you do not. You're missing out, man. Yeah. Well, cool. That's pretty much all I have for questions. Wise, is there anything else that you wanted to share at all? Um. No, not really. Just want to again. Uh, glad we can, you know, make this work. It's been a long time in the making, and I appreciate Definitely. your time. And um, no, I'm looking forward to hearing it, and uh, I'm glad I could be a part of this. Definitely, man. Like I like I said earlier, I'm very thankful that you came on and that you wanted to share your story. I know that it's probably not necessarily the easiest thing to share because a lot of it was kind of sucky that happened to you. You know, like there's just no other ways around it. It's very unfortunate. But as we talked about. 
you were able to learn a lot of things from the situation and the process. And now you're able to apply it to your career and you might even have a better outlook on your career. And kind of, like you said, you lit a fire up underneath your butt and now you're just on a mission and you can also help other people in this situation. So I challenge you to keep helping people and keep sharing your story and tell it to everyone. So, cause you never know who's going to be going through a similar thing until you talk to them. But I appreciate you coming on, man. I really do. Um, I wish all the best in your career. And if I can help you out in any way, just let me know. Awesome. Thanks. And uh, same to you, man. If you ever need anything, let me know. Sounds good, man. Have a good one. Aviation, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please let me know. Let me know on Instagram. Leave a review on iTunes. We are so close to 200 five-star reviews or just 200 reviews in general. Please leave a review. Let me know what you think. Also, leave me some honest feedback. Let me know what you think I can work on, how I can improve the podcast because I constantly want to create the best content for you guys. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I love constructive criticism, so let me know what you got, and I will do my best to improve this podcast for you guys. Also, if you love the podcast, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. That is where you get the pilot the pilot stickers, and I'm soon thinking about creating some aviation stickers that will be on Patreon as well. So look out for that. Aviation, I hope you have a great day. And as always, happy flying.